Yoshi, I'm at our Media City studio today, and it feels, for the first time really, probably in the last few years, just walking around, people in offices, people in the cafes, all of the cafes and the restaurants are quite busy, the tram on the way in was pretty busy as well. It feels quite normal, it feels just about on the right side of normal for the first time. Well, at my mum's house, where I'm recording from this week for the first time, it feels like it's felt for the last two years and indeed for the last 10 years, utterly, utterly silent. No workers, no activity other than her cat. (laughs) What's the cat called? Mimi. And she refuses to come in via the cat flap. If I'm in the room, she will demand that I open the door or the window. She's above that. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We'll have to get on the podcast at some point soon. You have to come on as, as a guest. This is the Manchester Weekly from the mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris. Welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly. Yoshi Herman is the editor of The Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper delivered by email. Yoshi, we're also going to hear from Danny, a cracking story that she's been working on this last couple of weeks. Yeah, this is a Danny classic in many ways. Ever since she joined The Mill as a reporter last year, she's been finding these really interesting people who you normally wouldn't hear from, who don't normally get a lot of sort of press coverage, but they've got a sort of quirky or interesting story to tell. And I think those kind of features really like get people a bit closer to the fabric of the city. So today's one is about the Salford men who, who fly pigeons and who race pigeons. And I think people are going to really like it. They're called pigeon fanciers, aren't they? Which is always kind of like the butt of a bit of a joke. But these guys take it real seriously. And actually, it's one of the things that I, I didn't realise is just how massive an industry it is. It's enormous, isn't it? To the tune of hundreds of millions floating around in this industry. We'll hear from the Salford leg of that industry from Danny shortly. Firstly, Yoshi, let's get into everything you need to know in Greater Manchester this week. It's been a busy, busy old week. And one element of that is an alarming trend in stabbings recently. Well, Greater Manchester Police's Detective Superintendent Chris Downey has been talking about this. Here's what he had to say. Unfortunately, there's no one single remedy for youth knife crime. The solution will involve police working alongside partners and the wider community. And in areas where knife crime is high, we will continue to work closely with partners and alongside the Greater Manchester Violence Reduction Unit. We will engage with local communities and we will understand why this is happening. Three weekends in Manchester, three fatal stabbings. It's six stabbings in 16 days now, Yoshi. And this is a cause for concern. It definitely is a cause for concern. There are two teenagers in Stratford and Salford who've died in incidents involving knives. There was a 20-year-old in Duckenfield who also died in an incident involving a knife. To give you some sort of context, normally over the course of a year, there are 50 or 60 homicides in Greater Manchester. So, you know, it's not totally out of the bounds of possibility that you would get this level of stabbings. But I think the concern really is about the youth of these victims and also the perpetrators involved, you know, in some of these crimes, not just these three seem to be young as well. There is some research from MMU which seemed to indicate that youth offences were up 200% in Manchester, not over the past couple of years, but kind of the couple of years before that, which is obviously a large rise. What's happened over the last few days is Greater Manchester Police have stepped up stop and search in nine areas, including Broughton, um, Central Bolton, Kersal, and a few others. And I suppose the question always with these crime waves or with these waves of reporting about crime is, are we seeing a real increase or are we seeing a few tragic events that have clustered together in time and that have given the impression of, of, of some sort of wave of youth criminality? 
that is a good question, isn't it? I suppose as we try to understand what's driving it might help us answer that question, at least in part. There are people talking about postcode rivalries and sort of conflicting bits of the region? I mean, what, what, what do we know at the moment, Yoshi? These things are hard to piece together, aren't they? But what do we have? The MEN did an interesting report a couple of weeks ago. They described this as a teen knife crime epidemic, which I'm not sure necessarily whether I'd go that far. But what they reported from experts was postcode rivalries intensified by the ability to goad each other over social media is fast becoming recognised as one of the major issues around knife violence. That's a quote from the MEN. They're talking there about a more casual drugs market where smaller groups and individuals can take part in a kind of almost gig economy style drugs market, which is quite contrasting to the sort of big gangs that used to operate in in Greater Manchester. So we're talking about kind of neighbourhood beefs, uh, 15-year-old, 16-year-old in a neighbourhood where they're known to be from another neighbourhood and people get on the bus and stab them, that kind of thing. That's also part of it. I think there's always a problem with these crime stories that a crime statistics are notoriously difficult to compare like one year from another one police force from another because whenever you look at the statistics from the office of national statistics they always say well this force has changed how it did statistics this one was inspected and told it needed to do statistics better so whereas with kind of headline homicide stats it's not that difficult to get it right because obviously someone dying is a huge event it's a non disputable event as it were some of these incidents around how many stabbings do you record and 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 how do you record them there can be more problems with that there's also a problem with the gmp specifically which is that they've been so bad with statistics over the past few years they've you know not included statistics in the national ones quite a few times so there's a kind of question around that i think generally speaking violent crime has been falling across the country in the past decade and what's happening in greater manchester is we think a rise in what's called serious youth offending these offenders seem to be getting younger and these you know academics seem to think that there is a rising trend in that particular age group that does not mean greater manchester is being overrun by homicides or stabbings comparable with the 1980s or 90s it definitely is not i thought there was a really interesting piece of research by mmu who worked with manchester city council and they really alighted upon one factor in this youth violence which was adverse childhood experiences it's kind of moments of trauma or moments of real difficulty that young people have had in their life and they find a really strong correlation between those kind of experiences and offending you know we're talking about things like substance abuse from parents that was very prominent neglect and physical abuse in these children's lives parental separation was was the biggest one and i think what those experts are saying is if we want to tackle youth offending we need to instead of saying to someone like you know why are you doing this? Why are you offending in this way? We need to kind of be asking questions. So what happened to you? You know, what what has happened in your life? And give these young people the kind of therapy that allows them to get past some of these experiences. Because some, some of them have had like five, six, seven, eight, nine of these kind of adverse experiences as counted by the academics. So um, that's an interesting paper. We were, we put it out on our Twitter feed if people want to read that. Mm, that is interesting, isn't it? And it's that sort of, you know, what's driving the crime? Well, what's driving the drive of the crime? 
is as significant as important a question, isn't it? We'll keep our eye on that for sure. and We'll come back to it, I'm sure, on the Manchester Weekly from the mill. Elsewhere this week, Yoshi, you might have seen this really striking headline that was run. I love it. I love it when the newspapers across the north do this. They all sort of band together and run a similar or the same sort of headline, usually to send a message to Westminster. This one that was ran in the Manchester Evening News and a bunch of other newspapers across the north read, Babies starting life in 2022 in Michael Gove's Surrey constituency are likely to be healthier, wealthier and better qualified than those born into communities like Greater Manchester. Does this levelling up plan really give these babies a fair chance? And it picked out a couple of actual children, babies, put them on the front pages of their papers from various different areas across the north. And that coincides with a big convention, doesn't it, this week, Yoshi, and a big conversation about, A, what levelling up really means as we sort of digest the, the white paper and what the north-south divide looks like. I thought this was a really clever campaign by newspapers like the Newcastle Chronicle and the uh, Liverpool Echo and the Manchester Evening News. They all have the same owner, so they often get together and do these kind of things. I thought this one was really good because a lot of the conversation about levelling up is about the big infrastructure changes that need to happen if bits of the North are ever going to be able to compete at all with London. So the transport infrastructure is clearly the big one that people talk about there, but people also talk about housing, they talk about education. I think the clever thing about this newspaper campaign was that it focused on life chances, put a much more human lens on that, which is if levelling up is about anything or is ever going to be you know, a meaningful political measure... It needs to improve the life chances of people who are growing up in Birkenhead, people are growing up in Bradford, people are growing up in Leeds, people growing up in Salford. And by focusing on these babies and saying, look, we're going to, you know, come back to these people every year or every two years, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think that's a really, really good way of sort of putting a human face to what is a bit of a dry policy area. The convention that you're talking about was the Convention of the North, you know, a get together of leading politicians and, and business people that took place in Liverpool this week. I thought it was striking. Michael Gove came up to this convention and said, trickle-down economics is not going to solve this problem, this north-south divide. It's going to require strong government intervention. I think that's obviously music to the ears of the Labour mayors and a lot of kind of Labour politicians and party activists in the north. He also said, we're not going to go back to the post-war thing of deciding which area gets which industry and telling the private sector what to do. I think his metaphor was something like, you know, we're preparing the seedbed, we're preparing the garden so that private investment can actually be effective. So I think that was a, an interesting comment. Let's hear from Michael Gove then. Here's what he told the Convention of the North. And it may seem odd coming from a politician on the right of the spectrum. That argument was an argument with what one might call trickle-down economics or classical economics. There's been a traditional economic view, not just on the right, but generally on the right, which says that the market will find its own way. You know, if there's a part of the country that's overheating, if London and the South East are where all the investment has been, then sooner or later... The rents that you have to pay, the congestion that you have to endure, the sheer difficulty of doing business in that uh, uh, overheating part of the economy will mean that jobs and investment and opportunity will move away. But actually all our experience is that that is not the case. Another interesting aspect of this convention was that the northern mayors 
who are all Labour mayors, you're talking about Greater Manchester, Liverpool City region, etc. They are putting pressure on the government over these scaled back rail plans. You'll remember the government basically made its rail investment plans less ambitious than people were hoping for Northern Powerhouse Rail, connecting you know Hull to Liverpool to Sheffield to Manchester to Bradford. And what these Northern mayors are saying is, we want a full economic assessment of the original plans, not the new ones, but the original ones, because that was not included in the government's rail review. I have no idea whether those lobbying efforts will work, but I think it's clear that Northern politicians, including Manchester City Council and, and Andy Burnham when it comes to you know the development of Piccadilly with HS2, it's clear that they are not letting this transport issue lie and that they are open for a, a broader battle about rail infrastructure over the next few months. So it'll be interesting to see where that one goes. Okay, great. And I guess it's that that will drive people to come and live in the north of England. Do you know, Yoshi, I must admit that whenever I pick up a newspaper supplement these days, nine times out of ten, I'm going to find an article in there about people leaving London or even leaving another city, really, and travelling out to the suburbs somewhere or heading to the north of England from the south. It sort of feels like a bit of a cliche these days, but it's also true, right? I mean, the swell of people leaving the south and coming up to the north, sort of post-pandemic, as it were, is a real thing. I think it is. I wouldn't say we've seen hard numbers yet that show that there is an enormous move in that way. But clearly there are indications that particularly people working in tech jobs, jobs that can be done remotely, are moving to Manchester because they can work for a, a London employer. So you're seeing quite a lot of discussion about that on Reddit. I thought there was like a an interesting theme in the last, I don't know, I guess a couple of months on the Manchester Reddit of people talking about moving here, asking questions about moving here, which neighbourhoods are worth going to, is the city centre good to live in, is there loads of crime in Piccadilly Gardens, all that sort of thing. And um, my favourite one this week was they, someone said, why are Mancunians so happy? And then they um, they linked to this, you know, 2019's timeout survey showing that Manchester is the third happiest place in, in the world. And then they also said, you know, if it rains all the time, how can people be so happy? And then loads of people replied and said, you know, why it's wonderful and, and why it's friendly and uh, how it's not as rainy as people think and <laughs> all that sort of thing. So, Daryl. It's up to you to make the argument. How can you be so happy about your home city when it is so damn rainy? Uh, cheap alcohol is the answer to that question. <laughs> it's very wet up here and very cold, but it's £1.99 a pint. So you can't complain, can you, really, with that? That's, that's what gets us through. Do you, I spend a lot of my time in London and I spend, I must, honestly, I must spend like maybe 40% of the time that I'm in London speaking to people in London who either are sort of getting an earful from me about the North and its virtues and how you should move up North or increasingly I'm seeing, I guess this sort of fits with the trend, people now inquiring, oh, so what, so, hang on, so you live up North and how is it? Like, you know, like I'm sort of some foreign beast that they've, uh, that they've sort of stumbled across in the wild and wanting to know, but genuinely wanting to know whether it's feasible for them. I'm seeing a lot more of that. Yoshi, just a quick uh, nod to COVID as well. And we've been sort of keeping our eye on this intermittently, haven't we, in the last couple of weeks as it slips down the news agenda slightly. Some news this week that the Prime Minister is considering bringing forward the point at which legal isolation for those who contract COVID is no longer required. That's a really big, big policy moment, isn't it? And there'll be lots and lots to discuss around that, I'm sure, in Westminster from scientists and politicians and beyond. But it got me thinking about Greater Manchester and where we're at. What do we know numbers-wise? Well, rates are falling. Case rates are falling. Hospital numbers are falling. So everything's going in the right direction there. I thought there was an interesting number that we looked at this week, 
which is the number of deaths from people who've had COVID-19. Because for many months at the end of last year, it was sort of five or six deaths per day in Greater Manchester. And then it went up to about 15 deaths per day in January. So there was a, a you know, kind of tripling there almost. And now we're back down that down to nine per day, and it's kind of on the way down again. So it's kind of interesting. There are more people dying having had COVID in hospitals in Greater Manchester now than there were like in, you know, November, December and earlier than that. But, you know, they are effectively the tail end of that surge we had over Christmas and in, in the new year. So hopefully soon that number will be down at a sort of much lower level again. Okay, we'll take that good news where we can get it. And there's been lots of talk, hasn't there, Yoshi, around a story that you ran last weekend in the mill about restaurant culture and a restaurant in Manchester in particular. The restaurant in question, Manor, which has a Michelin star, one of the first Michelin star for Manchester in decades. It's a highly fated restaurant. It's had very, very positive reviews in, in The Guardian and The Sunday Times. It's obviously won its Michelin star, so it's clearly turning out very good food. We've been speaking to people who work there for months now, almost half a year. The picture that they painted was less flattering than, than some of the reviews would have you think and probably showed a, you know, a, a different side of the kitchen, a different side of the restaurant that people dining there might not necessarily know about. So if anyone hasn't seen the piece yet, I you know, would encourage people to go and read the weekend reader we put out by Jack Delhanty. I'd also encourage you to sign up as a meal member if you haven't yet and, and, and read the further reporting that Jack did on Manor this week which we publish for members only. You can find that on our site once you've become a member. So I think it was an important story. I think hospitality is a really important industry in Greater Manchester. It's one of the big attractions of the city. It's one of the biggest employers. And I think it's actually quite rare that you hear from the workers. I think you hear from the restaurants a lot, from the bars, the nightclubs, via their press releases, via their well-known founders or their you know media-friendly entrepreneurs behind them. But I think it's actually quite rare you hear directly and honestly from the workers. And that's what this piece was all about. So, yeah, I'm proud that we published it. Okay, manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe and to read that piece in full. I've heard every lazy cliche under the sun about being northern. Most of them tend to involve mining or flat caps or whippets and sometimes pigeons. It's a cliche Les Green from Audsall Estate in Salford lives his work as a roofer and a construction worker is really about supplementing his other life, his passion, as part of the Salford Pigeon Mafia. The Mills' Danny Cole met Les and his pigeons and joins you now. Hi, Danny. Hey, how are you doing? I'm really well. Love this story. Tell me about Les. So Les is this swaggering Salfordian who sort of towers above everyone and he's got a sort of a very gravelly voice and he, he has a bit of a, a dirty mouth as well so he, he's known for swearing but when I went and visited him he said he was trying very very hard not to swear so he was very <laughs> polite and very courteous so he invited me inside his kitchen for a cup of tea and told me all about his pigeons he grew up in Salford he was actually um, grew up on the old Saul estate and he told me he was always animal mad when he was growing up he'd, he'd collect ferrets budgies falcons you know cats that had been hit in the road and he was always bringing them inside the house and nurturing them back to health one animal that caught his attention was a pigeon so one day he found a pigeon that had been injured and he brought it back inside and nursed it back to health I think he set it free and it sort of flew back to him so I think that was one of the moments where he realised actually pigeons were quite magical he tells me and his passion was born <laughs> and he he got to know a guy who's referred to as the wizard 
Wright, who was sort of a pigeon mentor to him. Is that yeah, right? You could call him a pigeon mentor. When he spoke of the wizard, it, it sounded very mystical and quite strange. But the wizard was actually a, a man called Stuart, who was a plasterer by trade. Um, and he sort of collected pigeons and kept them in a loft in a ginnel at the back of his house. I don't think he made much money as a plasterer because he never went to work. Les told me he was too busy looking after his pigeons. So I'm, I'm not sure how that worked out for him. But yeah, it was the wizard who took Les under his wing, so to speak, mm-hmm. and told him the ways of the pigeon, how to care for pigeons. Um, and every Saturday he'd take Les to... Um, He'd take Les into into Manchester city centre where the birdmen would sort of gather early in the morning with baskets of pigeons and they'd actually swap pigeons and sell their pigeons and that was where Les sort of acquired some of his first pigeons too. Wow, that's the sort of pigeon trading that goes on. Wow. And uh, look, we should we should say that we're talking here about an intelligent animal. There is a difference, isn't there? I think it's worth pointing out that Les was kind of keen to point out to you that there's a difference between the pigeon that you see in the town centre hobbling along with a gammy leg and a sausage roll in its mouth to the pigeons that people like Les breed and fly. Absolutely. So um, I think my first fear when I thought, oh, pigeons, you know, I was thinking, are they going to be dirty, smelly, missing a leg? But the pigeons that pigeon fanciers, so people who breed and race pigeons are called pigeon fanciers. I think most people refer to them as pigeon racers just because, you know, they're not familiar with the term. Yeah, pigeon fanciers, their league of pigeons are unlike any pigeon I've ever seen. So when I went and visited Les at his loft, um, he actually picked up a few pigeons and gave them to me and I was able to hold them and stroke them. And they're very, very impressive birds. They look like a normal pigeon but I think the key difference is the the quality of the feathers the health and some of the colouring so I suppose when you're in, in the street and you're looking at a pigeon trying to steal your, your Mackie D's you know they look quite dirty but pigeons are a bit like peacocks so most that they've got sort of this sort of iridescent rainbow sort of collar around the neck and it's really lovely to see them up close um, but yeah the quality of the pigeon is you know premiere i guess yeah they're really wow really wow. really fantastic and this is a really big business isn't it i mean it sort of sounds like like an odd niche sunday afternoon thing to do and for some it is but but it's also a huge industry with a lot of money swirling around in it yeah i was quite surprised to learn that the most expensive pigeon that was sold at auction sold for over a million pounds because i just thought you know pigeons you know you steal them off the street sort of feed them make them come back to you and you've got a racing pigeon but no um pigeons are big big business and their popularity over the years the popularity in pigeon racing i think can be attributed to something called one loft racing so les was explaining this to me so one loft racing has made pigeon racing much more accessible to sort of the normal person so in essence you buy a pigeon and then you enter it into a loft so you give it to a pigeon trainer who will house your pigeon feed your pigeon train it and then enter it into a race and all you have to pay is sort of the entry fee to this pigeon trainer so so i think it's about maybe 20 pounds per pigeon or something like that and then you just sort of you know let the pigeon trainer do its thing and then come race day if, if your pigeon wins um you get a pool of the earnings so you get a cut of the the prize money so that's really i think can be attributed to the growing popularity of the sport and why it's become such big business huge wow blimey and that in a sense i guess gave birth to what is now known as, what was known as, the Salford Pigeon Mafia. (laughs) Tell me about the Salford Pigeon Mafia. 
Uh, so the Salford, I actually uh, discovered the Salford Pigeon Mafia through a sports journalist called Mark Collings, who actually met Les and followed Les for a year and wrote about all his exploits. So that was where I'd found out that Les was a bit sweary because every single sentence in the book was just littered with F-bombs. But yes, the Salford Pigeon Mafia, when I asked Les about this, he denied it completely. And he said, oh, you know, that wasn't a thing. It was a reputation he'd gained because his success in pigeon racing was just so incredible that people thought that there was some dodgy stuff going on. So the way I understand it, during the 90s and sort of in the early 2000s, Les teamed up with a couple of his pigeon friends and they sort of would train their pigeons in such a way that made them so successful that they won every single race that they entered into. Because Les apparently used to knock about with people who were a bit rough. He'd been a doorman at one point and Mark Collins actually... I think he wrote in the book that Les was sort of part of a gang. That was where sort of the mafia reputation came in. But Les says he was never part of a gang and he was just sort of hanging out with a group of mates. But yeah, the Pigeon Mafia, they were so good. They dominated every single race that rivals would sort of stake out the loft to try and see if Les was sort of juicing them up. So like giving them (laughs) steroids or sort of, you know, (laughs) doing something untoward. But yeah, that was how the the story of the Salford Pigeon Mafia came about. Um. (laughs) Blimey. It all goes on, doesn't it? And they love these pigeons, don't they? I mean, the the relationship between the pigeon fancier and the pigeons is actually a really strong bond, I got the sense. Absolutely. So... I think the stereotype of sort of the northern working class man is, you know, quite rough and tough and sort of ready to fight. You know, I think there's a really important element of animal husbandry because these pigeons, the people who look after pigeons, you know, they love animals. They're very caring. And Les could actually memorise every single uh, sort of ring number. So pigeons, racing pigeons, they have a ring number which is attached to their foot. So it basically identifies the pigeon. So you know when you race and you let a pigeon go if it gets lost or it doesn't fly home you know the ring number will identify the pigeon and you can trace it back to its fancier mm. so les he's memorized all the ring numbers of all his pigeons which i think he can hold about over 200 pigeons as loft and each season the loft changes so after a racing season many pigeon fanciers will actually sell their pigeons on to other pigeon fanciers so that's where the sort of high stakes you know money comes from because if you've got a pigeon who who's won consistently you know other people will want that pigeon to breed and race so yeah so les when he was showing me around his loft he he was like oh that pigeon there didn't have a name yet but he was oh that's a that's pigeon you know the ring number ends in three three two so I'm fine. And then he picks the pigeon up, brings it over. So there you go, 332. Three, so that's very impressive. So, yes, yeah, so he knows it. He knows yeah. the uh, back of the, there is children, right? Yeah, he basically. Abs- yeah, absolutely. He knows every single one. And he, you know, he was able to tell me about their temperaments. So one thing that I found very surprising when I went and visited Les was that the pigeons are very docile. They're a bit like cats. He, he could pick them up. Um, I took a photo of him sort of like holding one upside down and it was sort of, you know, <laughs> chilling out. They're very docile. They're very actually quite intelligent birds. You know, you wouldn't think it. But when I went and visited, they're not used to strangers. So they were all flapping about and trying to, to you know, run away. But after a while, they all sort of settled. And because they know Les, you know, they're very calm and you can just, you know, he would just reach down, like pick one up and, you know, handle it, turn it upside down, you know, and then he'd actually lift open the wings out. So that's part of the 
skill, I suppose, in being a pigeon fancier is that you you recognise when a bird is healthy, when a bird is unhealthy. So he would actually open the wings and then he'd say, oh, this bird, you know, it needs to molt a few more feathers or it needs to grow a few more feathers. And then the pigeons would just, you know, sit there as cool as can be. And then he just sort of let them go and they right, sort yeah. of fly, fly back. Wow, finally. And, and it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, this is it is a very northern thing and it, you know it's got that sort of cultural tag to it hasn't it and it's a kind of a punchline for many people but actually it's a very serious thing with a really rich history isn't it that mm-hmm. people take seriously and evidently do very well out of as well mm-hmm. how much has les made i know for a fact when he sold all his pigeons a few years ago he made over five hundred thousand pounds and so that was when he auctioned off his birds and the top five birds went to China. So they were shipped overseas. So this was pre-pandemic. But in terms of actual winnings, when I put the question to Les, he was a bit coy about it. I said, oh, I have no idea. You know, he said, I, I don't want to make a lot of money. It's just, you know, it's just the, the satisfaction and the feeling of seeing his birds fly home safely. <laughs> nice answer. Danny, thank you. Okay, Yoshi, take us into the Mill Newsroom. What are you working on, my friend? By the way, a Mill Newsroom that I went into for the first time this last week, didn't I? Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. That furniture, the the wood, the patchwork. Brilliant. Lovely. Well, describe it. Describe it to the listeners. They can't see it. It's like stepping into a 19... sort of late 60s, early 70s investigative... It's exactly what you would imagine the sort of Guardian investigative department would be like, the insight (laughs) team (laughs) in the basement of the Guardian. Perfect. Those are all items I picked up on, like, Facebook Marketplace. You know, it's like, yes, you can get have this desk for 30 quid but you have to drive to Wigan to get it so I was I was all around picking up furniture for two months while Danny was actually making the mill and now we're uh, yeah we're ready to go <laughs> <laughs> that's t- time very well spent Yoshi very well spent and uh, what are you working on in that room my friend well we've got a really interesting piece by Alex King coming up which is about this whole row about the low admission zone this has been an ongoing saga that I think only a minority of people really care about, the clean air zone. People who are going to be affected, taxi drivers, buses, um, commercial vehicles, people with vans, they care a lot. And I think your average commuters who just have a regular car or who get the train to work barely know anything about it. So what we're trying to do with this piece is tell the vast majority of people who haven't been following it closely, what's going on? How has this row happened? Why has the government given Greater Manchester an extra few months to think through the implementation? What are the supply chain issues created with lower emission cars um, and all of that? It's not something I know a huge amount about, but Alex King, our freelance contributor, has been doing loads of work on it. And that piece is coming up. So I hope that puts a lot of people in the picture. Lovely, great stuff. I must admit that, I mean, I saw the sign go up near me in Salford and I thought, oh, that looks significant. That looks like something I need to know about. And I host a weekly news podcast for Manchester. (laughs) (laughs) And even even I managed to sort of miss the finer details. So that'll be super, super helpful. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe to get that in your inbox. And what's going on in the city, Yoshi, that we should be doing over the next couple of days? My recommendation is Sunday, um, 4pm at Bridgewater Hall. The Halle Orchestra is playing Mahler's um, Titan, which is his first symphony, along with some other works that people would really like. My big thing is whenever I go to the Halle and I see like, you know, half the hall empty or something, I think that's kind of a real shame because like this orchestra is, I think, one of the city's real sort of crown jewels and... It seems sad that they don't seem to pack it out as much as they should do. So uh, 
I think whether you're a huge classical music fan or not, I think it's really, really worth giving it a go. And it's, it's pretty cheap to go as well. So that's uh, Sunday, 4pm. Lovely, excellent. And my recommendation might be the most northern thing that we've ever recommended on this northern podcast, and that is Literature in the Mines, which is an exhibition showcasing mine workers' sort of culture and cultural works, the Working Class Movement Library in Salford, which in itself is really worth a visit, actually. It's really fascinating. It's a bit of a treasure chest of Manchester's history. Every Friday they are showing the uh, Literature in the Mines exhibition, which has got published poems and autobiographies and a lot of uh, sort of records of those people who were alive, active and working and building the foundations of the north back in that era really interesting stuff open every friday yoshi for now thank you thanks to danny as well don't forget the mill newsletter is full of news and events and deep dives into stories including that big story about manor restaurant in manchester really worth a read you can read that article in full by subscribing manchestermill.co.uk and we're back directly in your feed if you subscribe or hit like wherever you get your podcasts next week